of Esther, Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. I've wanted to do Esther for uh, many, many years out here. And every time I wanted to do Esther, one of the ladies' Bible study just did Esther. So I had to wait till every ladies' Bible study had their turn with Esther so I can finally teach it from the right perspective, the man's point of view. So I'm just, I'm just kidding. Dawn used to watch the Esther DVDs at home, and it's a Beth Moore study, and it's like I should have took notes. Um, some good stuff there. But yeah, Esther, I, lo- I like this book. This is a fun little book, and I, I hope you are blessed by this book as much as, as I am. As always, when we start a new study... I like to give you the key point. That way we, we can repeat it every single service as we go through this. The key point in the book of Esther is found in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. It says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And here's the key point of Esther. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now we just got done doing Ecclesiastes. We kept using this phrase, Ecclesiastes moments. Ecclesiastes moments are those moments of, Lord, I don't get it, I don't like it, I don't understand it. Why? Why are you allowing this to happen? This is so tough, I don't want to move on, I don't want to live. Ecclesiastes. An Esther moment is a moment of, God, you have put me here, you have placed me here for a reason and a purpose. I don't see that purpose yet, but I trust the fact that you're going to do something great with this. So Esther was placed in this position of power for a reason and a purpose of God and now she needs to know why the Lord has put her there. Now, for those that don't like history, just tune out for five minutes and come back, please. Because Esther is written during the same context, contemporaries of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're dealing with around 480, 470 B.C., about 2,500 years ago. Esther spans about 10 years, the whole book does. Now, for a little bit of background history here, and you just need to know this as we move on. In 586 B.C., the Jews were defeated by Babylon. And so the Jews were all taken to uh, Babylon to be captives, to be slaves. Well, what happened was, as world history goes, the Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians. So here were the Jews over in Babylon, being slaves to the Babylonians, captives. The Medes and the Persians come in. They defeat the Babylonians. So now the Jews are now with the Persians. Well, Esther is written when during that reign where the Jews were held captive by the Persians. Now, in some of the time, some of the Jews went back. Ezra, they went back to rebuild the temple in the book of Nehemiah. They go back to build the walls. But a good chunk, the vast majority of the Jews, stayed in Persia. And that's Esther. These Jews are living as captives in this foreign country. They're spiritually dry. They're spiritually cold. This is one of the interesting tidbits about the book of Esther. The word God is not mentioned once in ten chapters in the book of Esther. Because God is behind the scenes doing things. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Lord, where are you? I don't see you, I don't hear you, I don't feel you. That's Esther. God is moving behind the scenes, taking care of this, even though they don't see it. Here's a phrase we're going to repeat numerous times over the next few weeks. God is working even when we don't see it. God is working even when we don't see it. So these Jews are stuck in Persia in a very worldly system trying to live a godly life. Does that not describe you and I? Stuck in a worldly system trying to live a godly life, and sometimes we say, God what are you doing? What are you doing? Are you really moving here? Book of Esther shows that. Chapter 1 is quite a chapter of background and introduction. It's in chapter 2 we really get to the heart of it. So we're going to go through chapter 1 here very quickly. In chapter 1, we're introduced to one of the main characters of the book. His name is Azarius. Verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Azarius, this is Azarius who reigned over 127 providences from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Azarius sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, 
the citadel. Then the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all the officials and servants. Now, here's the problem. You start reading a book like that, and you're like, okay, this sounds fun. I'm going to read Esther. So you get three verses into it, and you have no idea what Shushan is, the citadel is, or who in the world is Assyrius. So you automatically tune out, and you don't listen. We do that. Let's just make this pretty simple. Assyrius is the king. His name is King Assyrius. Now, Shushan is the city which which he lives. Now, if you want a little bit of information, that's in present-day Iran. Shushan is in present-day Iran, so you can get a little geographical map there of what's happening. Well, he wants to throw a big party. So the third year of his reign, verse 3, he decides to throw this party. And this is not just any party. This is a huge party. This man, Azarias, is very prideful, very powerful, and he wants to show everybody. So he shows his pride and power, verse 4. He showed the riches of his glorious kingdom, the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. That's quite a party. Verse 5, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days. So the party just keeps going on and on and on. Verse 6 talks about all his glorious decorations. Verse 7, and they served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other. Now that's a party. You go to this party and you get your own unique golden cup to drink out of. That's how much power and prestige this guy had. And he wanted to make sure that everybody knew his power. But what happened was, as you find out here in verse 9, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women. So the guys are having their shing did, the girls are having theirs. We're introduced to Queen Vashti. Now, Queen Vashti was a very, very beautiful woman. Her name actually means beauty. So in the middle of the party, verse 10, the kings drank a little too much. He decides he wants to show off his wife, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So the king says, in the middle of this party, I'm going to show off my wife. So I'm going to bring my wife in so everybody can see. Well, Vashti doesn't want to be shown off. So she refuses to go. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. He says, come. She says, no way. So now we have a soap opera building up. Verse 15, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Azarius brought to her by the eunuchs. There's this huge uproar. She's not listening. She's not obeying. So the king calls all his wise men and says, what should I do? The queen just disobeyed me, disrespected me in front of everybody. And what they're afraid of. Now what they're afraid of is verse 17, that all the women will know now that they can despise their husbands in their eyes because Queen Vashti despised her husband. So now they're afraid that the whole system in Persia is going to fall apart because Queen Vashti disobeyed her husband. So they get this idea. They're going to make this rule, make this law, that all women have to obey, verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out for him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so it will not be altered that Vashti shall now come no more before King Azarias and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And so they say to go out and tell everybody this in verse 20 and verse 21. The point is verse 22, then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house. I want you guys to underline that. Each man should be master in his own house. We're going to spend a few weeks on that. Let's break that down. Each man should be master in his own house. Now, that's the introduction to this book. Now you can see what's happening here. Because what happens now in chapter 2, verse 1, after these things... When the wrath of King Azarias subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. 
And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, and to the woman's quarters under the custody of Higai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the woman, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Now he's got to replace his queen. And that's where Esther comes into play. Because Esther becomes the new queen. Not trying to give away the book, but that's what happens. God is working in this. So that chapter one, you sit there and say, what is the whole point of this? The third year of King Azarius and Queen Vashti, that's all there to set up the point that there's now an empty spot next to the king. Well, if you know anything about the book of Esther, there's a man that's going to come on the scene in chapter three by the name of Haman that wants to kill every Jew. Well, Esther's Jewish. God moves her into the spot of being queen, so that way when he tries to move against the Jews, God has somebody in there set up for it. This is the point of Esther. God is moving and working behind the scenes when you don't even know it. When you don't even know it, he is moving puzzle pieces around because he knows what is best. You and I all have Esther moments of, God, why? What are you doing? He's having an Esther moment. And so now we're into this chapter 2 of Esther being picked to be the queen. Now, I like to give credit where its creditors do, and I can't remember who said this, so if you were the one that told me this, I'm not trying to steal your joke. Somebody said one time, Esther, I've never seen the show, I've only seen the commercials, and I get enough of it. They said Esther is the original show, The Bachelor. You know, that there's this beauty pageant going on, verse 3, all the young girls are brought before the king, and he picks the one he wants. That's exactly what it is. He's going to go through all these young gals, look at them, check them out, and he's going to pick the one that he wants to be the queen. Verse 4, then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. Well, this is where Esther comes into play, because Esther is a beautiful woman. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 5, in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, Benjaminite. Well, he was, Kish was one of the people, verse 6, that was taken away when the Babylonians defeated the Jews. Verse 7, and Mordecai, Esther's uncle, had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So now we're introduced to the rest of the characters here. Esther's the beautiful young gal. Mordecai's her uncle that watches out for her. And she's going to be the one that's going to be picked to become the next queen. God is moving and working even though we don't see it. Now, this is important here. When these names are mentioned, anytime you see God do something like this, where he talks about name, Esther's name is Esther, but she's also known as Hadassah, and his name is Mordecai. Nowadays, names don't mean something. You don't pick a name based on what that name means. You pick the name because you like the name. Back during Bible times, names meant something. So when you look at these people's names, they carry a term. I may have mentioned earlier, Vashti's name actually meant beauty. She was beautiful. Well, interesting names here. Mordecai's name means little man. Esther means star, and her Hebrew name, Hadassah, actually means myrtle, if you ever wondered where the name myrtle comes from. Now, with this being said, let's talk about this for a second, because this is so important, this concept of names. Once again, when you and I name our kids or whatever, name really doesn't mean anything. To God, names mean something. In fact, so much so, in Revelation 2 and in Revelation 3, God says he's going to give you a new name. That new name shows that you are a born-again creation in Christ because he gives you a new name because your old name shows your old nature, your sin nature. And God wants to show that you are now a new creation in the Lord, walking Lord, doing godly, right things. You now have a new name in the Lord. What a beautiful thing that is. Problem is, we're walking in the Lord, we're born again with our new name. We have a tendency to jump back to our old lifestyle, to our old name. I've shared this story with you before, but when we got our dog uh, about 10 years ago, we got him from the pound. He's about a year, year and a half old. His name was Chance. Well, we didn't like the name Chance, so we renamed him Maddox. Well, when we were you know, having him at home and he was still... So when we uh, 
got the dog, we named him Maddox, his old name was Chance. Well, when we were trying to teach him his boundaries, what would happen is, is sometimes he'd run away. Well, as he would run away, we would yell for him, we would yell Maddox. Well, he would just look at us very strangely and keep running. Well, when we would yell Chance, he recognized that. He recognized his old name. Sometimes that's the way we are spiritually a little bit, is we have a new nature in Christ. God says, I'm going to give you a new name, Revelation 2 and 3. You're born again, a new creation, Lord. But yet, we feel really comfortable with our old name. We feel really comfortable with our old nature, our own our old relationships, our old lifestyle. And God says, no, I've saved you out of that. You're born again. You have a new name. See, the thing is, we just talked about this Wednesday, so forgive me for the repetition. We talked about on Wednesday that great verse in 2 Corinthians where it says, your life is like an open book read by all. Your life, your witness is your testimony. In fact, in the book of Proverbs chapter 22, it says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. It doesn't literally mean your name. It means your witness, your testimony. That's what carries weight. Too often as Christians, we don't worry about our witness and our testimony. God says that's how people see me is through how you live. Your witness and testimony show people how I am. And yet we see people in the name of Christ going out and saying things they shouldn't say, living in ways they shouldn't live, and acting in ways they shouldn't act. And God says you're not living up to your new name of being born again in the Lord. So we, our name is our witness, our testimony, and that means something to us. You may not like the name your parents gave you, but God says, I'm giving you a new nature, a new name, born again in Christ. We need to live up to our Heavenly Father's perspective of our new name. So let's talk about these names for a second a little bit. First off, Mordecai, little man. Not a real complimentary name. I always feel bad for people that are short, because with my height, I mean, I just feel bad for them. I look. Um, but this idea of little man... Well, you know, the thing is, if you know the book of Esther, at chapter 10, Mordecai's second in charge of the kingdom. The little man became a pretty big man. Now, that's God working things out. The little man becomes second in charge of the kingdom. Now, you don't see that in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, because God is working behind the scenes even though you don't see it. The little man becomes the big guy at the end. Now, I think it's interesting that he's the little man because Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he goes, not many wise are chosen. Not many intelligent choices, not many prouder choices. God chooses, the Bible says, the lowly things of the world to put to shame the wise. According to the world, you're just a little man or woman. Now, we like to think that people care about us. Election year comes around, the politicians promise they care about us. You may work at a big company, and that company may promise you that it cares about you. Truth of the matter is, they don't. There's only one entity that cares about you, and that's your Heavenly Father. To the rest, we're just people and numbers. We throw that phrase out a lot, one in a million really realize what that means, one in a million. If I'm one in a million, that means there's 300 of me in the United States. In China alone, there's a thousand of me. We're really not that unique when you think of five, six billion people. But to God, we're something. To the world, we're the little man, but to the Lord, he puts us in the place to become the big man. Remember with these names, God does not see us for what we are. He sees us for what we can become in him. What a beautiful thing. He sees you for what you can become. So you may look in the mirror right now, and you're a spiritually little person. Lord, I don't have much wisdom. I don't have much guidance. I don't have anything to offer the body of Christ. God says, I know. That's why I'm going to gift you and empower you to have you become something amazing and great. Let's talk about Esther's name. Esther's name means star. But I'm more interested in the other name, Myrtle. If you want to write these things down, you can do a little bit deeper study on your own. This idea of Myrtle, in Isaiah 55, Myrtle is a picture of salvation. And in Zechariah chapter 1, Myrtle is a picture of the heavenly realm, the angels working. Now I like that. Because here's this gal, Esther. That once again in chapter 2, she's a nobody. She becomes salvation for the Jews through God 
putting her in the position of queen, she becomes salvation to the Jews and saves them from a massacre. God working behind the scenes, even though we don't see it. You have a purpose. What's your purpose? Esther 4.14, yet you know whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. You may be sitting here saying, why do I go into work every day and do this or that? Why do I stay here? Why do I do this? Because God has placed you there for a reason and a purpose. Well, what's that reason and purpose? I don't know. If Esther really takes the span of 10 years, sometimes it takes years to figure out what your purpose is and where God has called you and why. So what do you do? Do you just sit there and pout and whine and complain about your situations in life? No, that's Ecclesiastes. We're done with that book. Esther is now, Lord, you have placed me here for a reason and a purpose, and I wait to see what you have in store for me. So we're introduced now to Mordecai. We're introduced to Esther. Let's see what God is going to do with these individuals. Verse 8, so it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the, excuse me, Haggai, that Esther was also taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young women pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave her beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided to her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not yet revealed her charge or people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Now that's important. You see God still moving Esther into this position of power. But verse 10 is thrown in there for a reason. She's not revealed she's Jewish. And jump down to verse 20. Now Esther had not revealed her family, her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. So that verse is repeated basically twice in the same chapter. Now, you may talk to people that are not very good at communicating. They have a tendency to repeat their points. God's not that way. God is very good at communicating. So therefore, if in one chapter he wants to repeat the same point twice, almost verbatim, why do you think he wants to do that? Because he's setting up the scene to show you Esther is being put in this position for a reason. She is a Jew. They don't know she's a Jew. They're going to make a Jew the queen. And so therefore, as they make the Jew the queen, God has put her in a position to save the Jews from the massacre that they want to do upon them. God is moving puzzle pieces around even though we don't see it. You have to trust that God is doing that. Some of you may be in an Esther moment right now in your life and you're just saying, Lord, why? Why did I not get the job? Why did I not get the house to sell? Why did I not fill in the blank? And you have to trust that the Lord is moving puzzle pieces around even when you don't see it. And it may be months and it may be years before the full picture comes into play. Just like in Esther here, God is moving. Moving these people around where he needs them to be for what's going to happen next. What do you do while he's moving people around? Well, let's see what happens here. Verse 11, And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Azarias after she had completed 12 months' preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparations apportioned, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now, I don't mean to make this as a sexist comment now, so please don't take it that way. But men, husbands, if you think your wives take a long time to get ready, verse 12, took them a year, a year to get ready. That is fascinating. A year, six months of oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes, a year to get ready to go see the king. Isn't that just fascinating? That's what they went through before they could even get a chance to go see the king. Now, I was reading through a book about Esther here, and the guy just made like a quick little comment on this point that just really hit me. He didn't go into detail on or anything. He just made a tiny little point that just was one of those conviction arrows right into me. He said these gals took a year to go see the king. 
He goes, how much time have you put into preparation to see the king? Boy, that convicted me. They spent a year to get ready to see the king. How much time do we put in our preparation to spend time with the Lord? How much prep time do you have with God? You can't have a deep, strong walk with God with minimal effort. You can't. But isn't this what we do in Christianity today? We try to get the most out of our relationship with the Lord with the least amount of effort. I've shared with you before, the quickest I've ever seen is one-minute devotions with God. You're never going to get anything out of one minute with God. What happens is we live in this society where emails aren't fast enough, so now we have to do texting. We sit there in front of the microwave and tap our fingers while we're waiting for things to get warmed up. Everything has to go quick and fast. The idea of just sitting and spending time with the Lord, I don't have time for that. Well, you're not going to have a deep, strong walk with God with minimal effort. You're not. There's no way. Jesus set the example for this. Every morning, the Bible said he got up early and spent time with the Lord in prayer. Joshua, who I would say was one of the busiest people that have ever lived, he was in charge of millions of people, he came out in Joshua and said, do not let this book of law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. That, that time of commitment to the Lord. Because if you don't invest anything into your relationship with the Lord, what do you expect to get back? One of my favorite quotes is it's attributed to Einstein. He says, compounding interest is the most powerful force in the universe. Compounding interest is the most powerful force in the universe. That idea of you make an investment, and that investment just keeps growing and growing and growing. I heard a great analogy about this recently. I like the finance background. They said, would you rather have $1 million right now, or would you rather have one penny doubled for a month? Now, if you stop and think about that, one penny doubled for a month. I, I did the quick math on it. After, I think, 10 days... It's only worth like $2.56. After 20 days, it's only worth like five, six, seven hundred dollars After 30 days of a penny doubled for a month, it's worth $5.3 It's amazing what it does. Now, that's a pretty good rate of return, <laughs> to double your money every day. But the point is, it's amazing what that does. See, we don't invest into our walk with the Lord, so therefore we wonder why we don't get anything back. Now, does God love you? You bet he loves you. But he also loves it when you want to spend time with him. If, if you're not investing in your relationship and walk with the Lord, when the difficult times of life come, which they are going to come, you're going to try to tap into your savings account with God and try to draw out peace and comfort, and, and, and God's going to say, hey, have you really made any investments with me? Because I love you. But I, but I don't see any investments that you made with me. See, here's the thing that we don't realize about our walk with the Lord or church, whatever. You know, so often people are like, well, things are going good. When things are going good, that's the best time to invest in your walk with the Lord. Because you know things are going to go bad. Because when things are going bad, that's when you're pulling out of your account. Lord, I need the comfort. I need the peace. I need that, Lord. When things are going good, it's the time to say, I want to do that, Lord. The problem is, as a world, we have it backwards. When the things are going good, we go to the Lord. And we try to draw out of something that's not there. When things are going well, we just have a tendency to kind of disappear a little bit. This happens a lot. I'll get a phone call from someone within the community that is, is just going down the church list. And they're struggling. They're struggling emotionally, spiritually, financially. They're just struggling. And so what happens is you try to give them comfort. But the problem is they have no relationship or walk with the Lord to base that comfort on. You know, God promises us in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good for those that are called according to his purposes. See, as a believer, I have that promise. As a non-believer, I can't give you that promise. And so what happens is they're looking for a quick answer, and my quick answer is, well, let's make a commitment to the Lord. I get a chance to share with them Christ, invite them out to church, but the problem is, in our society, we want that answer quick. Well, if you're not investing with God, you're not going to get anything back. I don't have any banking or savings accounts in, in Deschler. You know, it's just not where we bank. Nothing against it, just don't. If I'd go into Corn City Bank and want to empty out my savings account, I got nothing. <laughs> They'd probably look at me very strangely because I have not invested something at all 
in that bank. Nothing. Now, a few years ago, when Dawn and I built our house, we got uh, one of our loans through uh, Defiance. And one of the requirements was at Defiance is you had to make a minimal investment into a savings account. And the minimal investment was 50 bucks. So we put 50 bucks. I have 50 bucks in a savings account over at Defiance. And I believe I just saw my last statement. It's now worth $55.81. Now, the point is, I can go to Defiance now and pull out that $55. Now, is it much? It's not much at all. Why? I made a minimal investment. I got nothing in Dashler because I invested nothing. I got a little bit in um, Defiance because that's where I made a minimal investment. All of our stuff's in Hamler. Same thing with the Lord. Wherever you invest your time and energy, that's where your interest is going to build up. If you do not put time, effort, and energy into your walk and relationship with the Lord, you won't have anything to draw out when the times get tough. That's why we do verse 12 preparation, just like she did to meet the king. Lord, I want to meet the king, so I want to put effort into my walk to be prepared for you. I want to be prepared for you. So does this mean when the going gets tough, if you haven't invested anything with the Lord, that when you show up to him and say, Lord, help me, he's going to ignore you? No, I'm not saying that at all, because God's a God of grace, love, and mercy. Aren't you thankful for that? But here's the thing I want to say to you. There's balance verses. I like that term. If you fall into the hands of Christ, he will catch you because God loves you. Recently, Elias had a bad dream. So it was like 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning a couple of days ago. He came into our room. I remember hearing something about a bad dream. I just picked him up, threw him in bed, and he slept in our room. Now, why could he do that? Because he knows Dad's there. Hebrews 4.16 says you can boldly go to the throne of grace. You can run to your dad anytime you need to run to him, and he will always be there for you because that's what it is. Now, at the time, I really don't even know which kid it was. I, I remember waking up knowing there was a kid in my bed. And I couldn't remember if it was Elias or Judah and ended up being Elias. You could come into my bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'd just pick you up and throw you in bed. It'd be, it would be a little weird and awkward, but I'd probably just pick you up and throw you in bed. Um, point, though, is Elias knows his dad is there and he can go to it. I did not at 2 o'clock in the morning say, Elias, you're having a bad dream. Elias, tell me you love me. Elias, you, you didn't tell me you love me enough today. Or, or Elias, you didn't do something nice to me today, so therefore I'm not going to help you through this difficult time. No, the love of the father is you help your child. But there's also the flip side of preparation. See, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself an approved workman, rightly dividing the word of truth. I can run to my father anytime I want, but God also says, James, spend time with me. Study, because as you spend time with me, you're making investments into your spiritual walk, and so therefore you will be stronger in your walk with me, so when the time does come and you do run to your father in your time of need, there's a stronger bond and relationship there. That is why it's so vital to have that regular time of prayer and scripture and study, small groups, whatever it is, with the Lord, because there are going to be Ecclesiastes moments that come. And during those Ecclesiastes moments, you need God's hand to get you through it. And so you invest in your relationship with the Lord now, knowing that you're going to need that later on in life. Esther spent a year to meet the king. We're going to meet the king of the universe. What type of preparations are we going to put into that to be ready for him? Because I want to meet him strong in my walk and relationship with him. And look how she prepared. She prepared myrrh and perfume. That's a fascinating thing because myrrh throughout the Bible represents death. So there's a time of your preparation with the Lord What's the time of dying to yourself? Part of your preparation to meet the king is dying. Dying to those desires that you know aren't right. Dying to that flesh that you know brings you down. Dying to those things that hurt you and hurt your walk with the Lord. So God says part of your time of preparation with me is, is a time of dying to those things that are hurting you and your marriage and your life, etc. Well, the other time of preparation is the perfume. Now, not to repeat Wednesday's message, but we talked about this Wednesday, this idea of fragrance. 
We talked about how 2 Corinthians says that we are an aroma. As Christians, we have a smell. And that smell, the Bible says, is either a say, aroma of salvation to bring people deeper into their walks with the Lord, or Corinthians says it's an aroma of death. So therefore, when people are around us that aren't saved, there's a conviction because we're pointing them towards Christ. And to be honest, they don't want to be around us. I, I know this for a fact. I share this with you all the time as a pastor. When, when someone is usually spiritually not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and I try to contact them, they don't want to talk to me. But yet, and haven't you been in that spot too? I should probably spend time with the Lord. I don't want to spend time with the Lord. And that's because why? There's that aroma of death, of conviction. We know that we're wrong. So she spends a year preparing with the myrrh and the perfume. What are we doing to prepare ourselves to meet the king? What do we need to die to? What do we need to do to have that fragrant life that's a witness for the Lord? It's a good example there from Esther of what we can learn from. Let's move on. Well, in verse 13, she gets prepared and she gets to go meet the king. And in verse 14, she goes in in the evening. And if the king likes her at the end of verse 14, he'll call her back by name. Well, verse 15, now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the woman, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Now, how did she obtain favor? Because God's hand is on this. He is moving these puzzle pieces around. Verse 16, so Esther was taken to King Azarias into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibath in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. And the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. This gal goes from being a nobody to now feast her in her honor. She is now the queen of the kingdom of the most powerful nation in the world, Persia. Why is she there? Because God is putting her in a position now to use her later on because he knows what's coming. That's Romans 8, 28. And all things God works for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. You put God first, he will put you at the places where you need to be. You may be in an Esther moment right now if you're saying, Lord, why? Why am I here? What is the purpose? Why have you put me in the spot that I am in right now? Because God says, I'm going to use you there to be a light and a witness. That's part of the beauty of it. It's a beautiful thing to know that whatever state you're in right now in life, God is going to use that purpose for him and his glory. Esther shows us that. that you can trust that, that God is moving it around. Well, things worked out pretty good for Esther. What about Mordecai? Verse 19, when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people. We talked about that before. Verse 21, in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Azarias. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that's a setup point for what's going to happen here in a few chapters, because Mordecai saved the king's life. And Mordecai is trying to do something good. Mordecai is trying to do something right. Now, according to this, what happened because Mordecai did something good? Absolutely nothing. Now, Mordecai is honored. It's not until what? At least chapter 6. But right now, nothing. Nothing happened. Haven't you ever been in that spot in life where you have served, you've done something amazing, and it's not noticed in any way whatsoever? You did something at work. Boss doesn't even say thank you. No one cares. No one notices. You serve out here at church. No one said thanks. No one noticed. Nothing. You had the worst Sunday morning ever back in the toddler room, and no one ever noticed. You cleaned the church, and it was horrible. Horrible job cleaning the church. No one ever noticed. You're a Mordecai moment. You, don't you think Mordecai at least 
Maybe he wanted a pat on the back? I mean, and we know it was done his name. Verse 22, Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. It wasn't that there was a miscommunication. It wasn't that Esther was taking credit for it. She said this in Mordecai's name. This is what happened. And the result of this is nothing. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Let's finish this up. Matthew chapter 6. Because you kind of got Esther. That's done nothing other than look pretty. She's now the queen. You got Mordecai actually put his life on the line. And he got nothing out of it. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. that They may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. See, here's the key. God saw what Mordecai did, and that's all that matters. And so Mordecai will be honored. Once again, it's not until chapter 6 and 7... But Mordecai will be honored in God's time frame. See, this is once again the point of Esther. You have to trust that God will take care of everything in his time frame. Well, why isn't it moving quick enough? Well, Esther is a great example of God was putting these people in place in positions because he knew the threat of Jews that was coming against him. Now, is verses 1 through 4 saying it's wrong to thank people and it's wrong to be thanked? Of course not. That's not what it's saying. Verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 6 is saying, check your heart. That's what it's saying. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, thank you for filling the blank, for teaching the kids in the back, for helping with worship, for helping out there. There's nothing wrong with that. There's also nothing wrong with, with having that thank you be given to you. But what verses 1 through 4 is saying is, check the heart. Who are you doing it for? See, Mordecai did it because it was the right thing to do. I don't know how many times in counseling I hear this. Well, why should I be nice to her when she's not nice to me? Because God said, be nice. God said, do not respond to how they act. God says, be the mature one and act nice. Well, I'll be nice to her when she's nice to me first. No, that reveals a heart issue. The heart issue is you show love, grace, mercy, and compassion. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another because that's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do, so that's why we do it. We don't do it to be noticed. We don't do it to be seen. I don't know how many times I've seen this in my life and also doing counseling with people. Well, you know what? I was really nice to her the other day, and I didn't snap at her. She never said thank you. You're not doing it to be thanked by her. You're doing it just because it's the right thing to do. Mordecai did the right thing. He informed the king. He didn't get rewarded for it. God saw it. Now, we all sit here and say, well, yeah, that's good enough. But let's just be honest in our flesh. Sometimes it's not good enough, is it? Sometimes we want the pat on the back. Well, Esther shows us that God does promise those things that are done quietly for the Lord will be noticed. He will notice that and he will see that. And as he sees that, he gets the glory. Stay in Matthew and jump back to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, the problem is we take out those last uh, six words. Let your light so shine before men they may see your good works. Stop. No, and glorify your Father in heaven. The reason I do something is to further the kingdom. Is it nice to be thanked? You bet it's nice to be thanked. That's human nature. We like that. But at the same time, too, Lord, help our hearts to truly say it's you, it's all you, no matter what. Mordecai is an example of a man that did what was right just because it was right. Now, God honors him a few chapters later, but at the end of chapter 2, there's nothing. There's nothing there about that. Esther, who's done nothing but be pretty as queen, Mordecai puts his life on the line, nothing. See, 
Esther, once again, is a book of where God is working behind the scenes even when you don't see it or know it. I cannot stress that to you enough. If you're in a spot of life right now and you're like, Lord, why? What is going on? What are you doing? Esther shows you that God is working behind the scenes even when we don't see it and we have to trust it, trust the big picture. By the end of Esther, chapter 10, we see the whole plan. We see the whole purpose. But in chapters 1 and 2, what's the big deal? Vashti doesn't want to go before the king. Okay, now Esther is queen. What's the big This is all puzzle pieces being put together for something big coming on. You may be in a spot right now where there's literally years of preparation being put into this for God to put you at the right spot at the right time with the right background to be a light and witness for him to plant seeds. That's what it all comes down to, guys, is being available where God wants us to do it for him and his glory. That's what it comes down to. Marv, we've come forward here for the final song. Hope you're going to be blessed by the book of Esther. I 